Let's pray. Father, we come once more to you, not as a formality, but because we are needy creatures. And we ask, Lord, that you would meet us now in our time of need and help us to understand your word uh, in more depth and with a greater clarity than perhaps we have up to this point. And Lord, we ask that you would do this for your name's sake. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me back to the Gospel of Mark. We'll be in chapter 4 this morning, and we'll continue our study of the parable of the sower, Mark chapter 4. Last week, we saw that the lesson of the parable of the sower is quite simple, and the lesson is this. The way one responds to the Word of God is determined by the condition of the heart. The status of the heart determines the response to the Word of God. And as we've worked our way through the Gospel of Mark, we've seen that there are multitudes of people who are flocking to Jesus just to hear Him teach. And of course, there are a number of other reasons But Jesus told us clearly in Mark chapter 3 that the reason he came out was to preach the word. And as he is preaching to the shock of his disciples, the word is not falling on each heart in the same manner. At this point in Jesus' proclamation, his teaching ministry, the circle of His true followers, those who have responded to Jesus in faith and repentance, the circle of true followers is very small. Only a slender minority of people had actually followed Jesus. Maybe 20, maybe 30 people. You remember back in chapter 3, it was enough to be sitting around Jesus inside a house. So maybe it was 20, maybe it was 30. We know the house was like overflowing with people. Uh, So there were a lot of folks in there. But it's a small, we don't know the number, but it's a small number of people who have followed Christ, responded to Him in faith and repentance. But even within that number, there's still Judas Iscariot. So it's a small number, and even that number, there's a remnant within that number itself. Now, all of this, I think, would have been somewhat confusing for the true disciples. Why were so few people actually responding to Jesus in a positive way? And in particular, why were the religious elite, the ones who knew the Scripture the best, why had they so decisively rejected Jesus Christ? How could this be? How could it be that the one who was calling himself the Messiah, the one they believed to be the Messiah, how is it that the leaders of Israel themselves had so decisively rejected Jesus? What was the problem? Well, as we saw last week, the problem was not with Jesus. Jesus was not the issue. The issue, the source of unbelief, was not the inefficiency of the preacher, and that's true even today. The issue of unbelief is an issue of the heart. The problem in Jesus' day is the same problem today. The problem with failed responses to the gospel and the word of God 
The problem lays within the heart of those who hear the word taught. Now, there is such a thing as bad teaching and bad preaching. That's true. But if the word of God is faithfully proclaimed and faithfully taught, then at that point, the issue lies within the hearts of those who hear the word taught. And that was the issue here in the first century with the crowds, and especially it was the issue with the religious leaders. It was an issue of the heart. From a human perspective, it's the heart, not the sower, that determines the response to the word of God. And what we see in the verses before us this morning, particularly verses 10 to 12, is that those who receive the word of God in faith, with a good heart, that's what Jesus says in Mark 4 verse 20, they receive the seed of the word with a good heart. Meaning not that they are righteous in themselves, that's not what he means, but they are the kind of people who hear the word of God and they're thinking quickly about doing it and obeying and responding. Those people who respond in faith to the word of God What we find out this morning is that they are rewarded by God with greater clarity and greater understanding about God and His work in the world. That's one dimension of what we'll see this morning. You respond in faith to Jesus, Jesus turns the lights on for you. And can't you testify to that? All of a sudden you bow the knee to Jesus and boom, you see the world, you see your life with a clarity that you never saw before. Well, that's not incidental. This is the work of God in the hearts of those who bow to Jesus. So if you respond to faith in faith to Jesus, you're rewarded with greater understanding, but most of these, the content in verses 10 to 12 actually has to do with those who reject the Word of God. Those who perpetually reject the Word of God and respond to the preached Word In hard-hearted unbelief, they are rewarded, but their reward from God is further hardening. Which comes from the Lord as an act of judgment upon their sinful hard-heartedness. And what we'll see is that there is a way that you can reject God. Reject God's word in particular over and over again until eventually you reach the end of the line, as it were. And God responds to your hard-hearted rejection of Him with a divine judgment. And the divine judgment serves to further harden you in your unbelief. Now that is very sobering. So much so that really verse 11 and 12 are dedicated to dealing with that particular issue. It's sobering, it's a necessary warning for us, that's true, and we'll probably take this Sunday and next Sunday just sort of unpacking what exactly that means for us. But in the meantime, let's stand and look at these verses together. Our focus will be on verses 10 to 12, but we'll jump back and start reading in verse 1 to get the context. Mark 4 and verse 1, He, that is Jesus, began to teach again by the sea. And such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down. And the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables and was saying to them in his teaching, Listen to this. Behold, the sower went out to sow. As he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on the rocky ground 
where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched. And because it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns. And the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. Other seeds fell into the good soil. And as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop, and it produced thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. And he was saying, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. As soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But those who are outside get everything in parables, so that while seeing they may see and not perceive, and while hearing they may hear and not understand. Otherwise they might return and be forgiven. You may be seated. It is a very sobering passage, especially that last line in verse 12, otherwise they might return and be forgiven. And it will take some thought on our part as we try to get our minds around what the Lord means here. Between verses 9 and 10, there's a shift in scenery that's important. In verse 1, we were told that a massive crowd had gathered to hear Jesus preach. And we learned in verses 3 to 9 that Jesus was teaching them many things in parables. And there was one parable in particular that stood out. And that was the parable of the sower. And Jesus, at the end of proclaiming that parable, verse 9, He exhorted the crowd to respond to Him in faith and repentance. Now you say it doesn't say respond in faith and repentance. It says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, we saw last week that that is just another way of inviting the crowd to weigh what Jesus has been saying and to think deeply over it. But it is, in essence, a call to repentance. It goes back all the way to the Old Testament where God would call His people to hear, to listen, to obey, to not be insensitive or dull, but to hear if they had ears to hear. And here, what Jesus is doing is he's calling the crowd to turn from their stubbornness and rebellion and to humble themselves and to actually listen to God. That's what he's calling them to do. But by the time we get to verse 10, as I said, the scene has changed. The crowds have dispersed, it seems. And verse 10 says, as soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, begin asking him about the parables. So he's finished teaching, the crowds have dispersed, we're not sure exactly how Jesus was able to sneak away from this multitude, but he was able to do it, and he's alone at this point with his followers. Now that change of scenery is very important for how we understand verses 11 and 12. In this inner circle that's now alone with Jesus would have been the twelve apostles, These are like apostles in training. They were just called not too long ago. And now they are with Jesus, away from the crowds. And there's also a number of other disciples. Because the text says, He was alone with His followers along with the twelve. There's the twelve, and then there's other followers of Christ. 
And as soon as these followers, these disciples, are alone with Jesus, they start to ask him questions. And specifically, they ask him questions about the parables. Notice, verse 10, they're asking about the parables, plural. It's not about the parable, which is the parable of the sower, but it's about parables, plural. Really, they're asking about the parables in general. And again, we're not told what they ask exactly. We're just given Jesus' answer in verses 11 and 12. So we can sort of deduce what their question might have been based on Jesus' answer. It would have been something like this. Remember, Jesus is teaching. And if you go down, let me back up. If you go to chapter, in chapter 4, if you go down to verse 33, it says this. With many such parables, he was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable. But he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. He was teaching them now parabolically. They're getting parable after parable after parable. Now, I don't know if you were in Sunday school and you heard Ron talking about Ezekiel and some of the strange things that Ezekiel was doing. Those were functioning essentially as parables, as word pictures of what God was going to do. And some of them are inexplicable. You can't see you know, him cut his hair and divide it up into like six portions or whatever, sew some of it to his hip. If you don't have an explanation to what that is about, that is a riddle to you. It makes no sense unless God comes and makes it clear and says this is what it means. And that's what's happening as Jesus is teaching. He is teaching these people in parables, which if those parables are not explained, they are riddles. And he would take his disciples, those who were on the inside, he would take them alone. When they were alone, he would take them aside and give them an explanation. Now, they ask something like, Jesus, why are you doing this? Why are you speaking? All these people are coming. Why are you speaking to them in riddles, in parables that you're not explaining? Why? What, what's going on here? Why give parables without an explanation? In verse 11, Jesus answers them, and his answer is quite shocking. He says, verse 11, he was saying to them, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But those who are outside get everything in parables. So that, it's a purpose statement, so that while seeing, they may see and not perceive. And while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. So why am I teaching in parables and only explaining it to you on the inside when we're alone? Well, it's because to you has been given the secrets of the kingdom of God. To those on the outside, it remains riddled. It's an enigma and they can't understand it. Now, that's difficult. That is a difficult statement because it tells us that Jesus not only used parables in order to reveal the truth to his followers, but he also used parables in order to conceal the truth from those who were not following him. That last part, concealing of the truth. Now, that's the part that's a little unsettling for us because we don't think usually in this way. We don't think 
about God, part of His glory being to conceal a matter, like the Proverbs say. We understand that God in Christ is revealing truth to His people. We get that. But the concealment part, the hiding of truth by God, is something we don't usually think about. It makes us uncomfortable, and it is shocking. And I will tell you, I would submit to you, that it's actually meant to be so. It's meant to be shocking to you that Jesus says what He says here. It should be a little alarming. It should cause you to peek up and be thinking, what is He talking about here? It's meant to be provocative, and it would require deep thinking, so much so that this was not the only time Jesus said these kind of things. Actually, sometimes if you're reading about Jesus' teaching ministry, you get the impression that He was actually trying to run people off. But he had an agenda, a purpose, of course. So let's take some time to think deeply about this together, okay? It'll take us two Sundays, but we'll do it together. First, I want us to look at the revelation of the truth to the disciples. That's the first part of verse 11, all right? Parables in Jesus' ministry function to reveal truth and conceal truth. So this morning, I think we'll have time to look at the revelation of truth to Jesus' disciples, those on the inside. Those on the inside were those who had responded to faith in Jesus Christ. They were now, according to verse 11, to be given the mystery of the kingdom of God. You see that in verse 11? Now, a mystery in the Bible refers to something that was formerly unknown, but is now being revealed. That's simply what a mystery is. Now, don't think mystery novel, don't think mystery sci-fi, don't think that. A mystery is something that was formerly hidden in the private, unmanifested counsel of God. It was there. God knew it. But now, all of a sudden, for some reasons, reasons known only to God, He decides to reveal something that was formerly hidden. That is a mystery. And here, the text says, it's the mystery of the kingdom of God that is being revealed. Now the question, obviously, is this. In what sense was the kingdom of God a mystery up to this particular point in God's plan? You read the Old Testament, you see kingdom everywhere. The kingdom is everywhere. You read the prophets, you see the kingdom is everywhere. So in what sense, Jesus, is the kingdom of God, or was the kingdom of God, a mystery up until this point when Jesus is explaining it to his disciples? That's the question. So I want us to think about that for a minute. Let me give you a definition of the kingdom of God in, in, in a really simple way. The kingdom of God refers to the place of God's rule. The kingdom of God refers to the place of God's rule. Or to put it another way, it's the sphere of his dominion. The place of his rule or the sphere of his dominion. Now, the Old Testament is crystal clear. The sphere of God's dominion is unbounded. It's universal. It encompasses all of creation. Psalm 103.19 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. That's universality. That's a universal kingdom. It includes everything and everyone. 
believer or unbeliever, you are in that kingdom. You are a part or you're underneath God's universal kingdom. First Chronicles 29.11 puts it this way. Great verse. Yours, O Yahweh, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, and the victory, and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Again, that's a universal kingdom. God's universal kingdom encompasses all of creation. He is the Lord of creation. And He is the sovereign, the absolute sovereign over it all. However, Jesus is saying there's a dimension of your kingdom that was not revealed in the past, but is now being revealed. And I think it has to do not so much with the universality of the kingdom, but with this second dimension of the kingdom that I'm about to tell you about. We see the universal kingdom in the Old Testament, but there's another dimension to God's kingdom that we could call the mediatory kingdom of God. And it's this. In God's wisdom, He certainly rules universally over all creation at all times and in all places. Yet, throughout history, God has mediated His rule through His faithful subjects on earth. God has mediated His rule through His faithful subjects on earth. This is what we call the mediatory kingdom of God. The idea is this. God's universal kingdom is being mediated on earth through human agents. And that actually begins all the way back with Adam and Eve in Genesis 1. And it touches on the very purpose for which Adam and Eve and you and I were created. Just listen to Genesis 1, 26-28. And listen for regal, monarchical, kingly language. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Do you get the point? Let them rule. Let them rule. Let them exercise dominion over the earth. And goes on in verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Subjugate it. Conquer it. And rule over it. Rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now that is the kingdom mandate. God creates Adam and Eve and all of their offspring subsequently to rule over the world that God has made. To rule over all of creation. That's Psalm 8. Just read Psalm 8. It's there. We are all, at every point in human history, we are all created to rule over the world that God has made. He made the world and He made us to rule over it. Psalm 116, Psalm 115, 16. The heaven is the Lord's heavens, but the earth He has given to the sons of men. He has made Adam and Eve and all their offspring to mediate His rule on the earth, to represent Him on this earth. That's really amazing to think about. Every time you pull those weeds out of your flower bed, you're exercising dominion. Every time you discipline your puppy and you train this dog up, right, you're exercising dominion over the created order. 
Every time you discipline your children, you're doing the same thing. Every time you discipline yourself, you're, you're, all of this is you're exercising dominion over the world that God has entrusted into the care of human mediators, human agents. Now, throughout history, this mandate to rule that goes all the way back to Genesis 1, 26 to 28 has found very specific expressions in men like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and most clearly, King David. These were men who, in a sense, uniquely mediated the kingdom of God on earth. They represented God in a very unique way on the globe. Each of them followed in the line of the first Adam. And their lives and their ministries, although exemplary in many ways, were flawed, though, just like Adam's. And they exercised dominion on earth in sinful ways. And ultimately, they failed to rule over the created order in God's stead in a way that was ultimately faithful. Which is why a second Adam was needed. There was a need for a second Adam, someone to come along who could faithfully rule over God's created order where the first Adam and his offspring had failed. And of course, the second Adam, or what Paul calls the last Adam, was the promised Messiah that all the Old Testament is pushing towards and putting the hope of God's people in. This last Adam who would come and actually rule over the world in a way that was godly and usher in the kingdom of God on earth. It's exactly what is happening in the ministry of Jesus. Go back to Mark. Mark chapter 1. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has come, and in Mark 1 verse 14 and 15, remember what He is preaching. He is preaching the gospel of the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom. And he was saying that the kingdom of God is at hand. This is what he meant. The final mediator of the kingdom of God is here. And now this kingdom of God is being ushered in. Particularly, it's uniquely present. The kingdom of God is now uniquely present on earth through the mediation of the promised Messiah King. So Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand or near because the long-awaited messianic king has finally arrived and the presence of the true king, the last Adam, brings the kingdom of God near. Now, the expectation, of course, from the crowd is that the kingdom of God, since it's near now, the kingdom of God is going to come at that moment through the Messiah with all the pomp and splendor that normally accompanies worldly kingdoms. That is the expectation of the crowd. We see it again and again throughout the Gospels. And the the disciples, actually, even up till the very end, are saying in the book of Acts, is it now that you're going to bring the kingdom of God in? Where's the pomp? Where's the ceremony? Where's the splendor? That's what we're looking for. Read the Old Testament, that's what they should have been looking for. It's, it's going to come and, and it's going to be visible and manifest and powerful. 
And when it does come, it would be ruled by the Messiah and it would be glorious, comprehensive, and incontestable. That's what they were looking for. But now we come to Mark 4. And Jesus is going to reveal something new about this kingdom. I'm arguing that this is what they knew, the crowds were sort of anticipating. And now we come to Mark 4, and Jesus is saying, To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. What is that mystery? I think the mystery is this. The new revelation has everything to do with the way in which the kingdom of God will come. The way, the manner. Not so much what the kingdom of God is, but the manner in which the kingdom of God is going to come. Read Matthew 13, end of Mark 4, the parable of uh, the mustard seed and the other seed. Right There's, there's a, a shockingness about the coming of this kingdom that wasn't known before. The anticipation, the expectation was that it would be instantaneous and immediately glorious. And Jesus is going to say in this chapter, it won't be instantaneous. It won't be immediately glorious. glorious. It won't be in the way that you are all expecting it to be. Maybe the best synopsis of all of this is actually Luke 17. You might want to flip over there really quickly. Luke 17. In that passage, the Pharisees come up to Jesus and they were questioning Him, the text says, as to when the kingdom of God was coming. So I'm saying that the mystery that's being revealed in Mark 4 about the kingdom is the manner in which the kingdom of God is coming. Now, of course, there are other dimensions that our Lord is going to unfold and that we'll get in the New Testament. But I think at this particular point with these kingdom parables, what we're going to see is it's, it's the manner and the way in which the kingdom of God is going to come. And so the Pharisees come up and say, when is the kingdom of God going to come? And Jesus responded to them in verse 20 and told them that the way the kingdom was coming would be in a much different way than they anticipated. He said this, verse 20, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is. Look at all the pomp and splendor. Or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst the kingdom of God is in your midst literally the kingdom of God is within you that's what he literally is saying there it's within you it's in the heart that's the idea it's not coming Mr. Pharisee with all the pomp and splendor and ceremony that you think it should come with In this, I think, inaugural phase, the kingdom of God is going to come quietly and invisibly in the hearts of men. Now, do you see the sort of connection there with the parable of the sower, also called the parable of the soils? Why is there so much about the heart all of a sudden when we're talking about the kingdom? Well, because this is the point. You're looking for it to come and descend from heaven. It's going to be wonderful and everyone's going to repent and follow Jesus. Now they're not doing that. What's going on? Jesus says, they're all going to keep thinking that's the way it's going to come. But let me tell you a secret. Let me tell you something about the kingdom that no one has known up to this particular point. And it's how the kingdom is going to come. 
In his first coming, Jesus was inaugurating a phase in God's kingdom in which the kingdom of God would be manifested in the hearts of God's people through faith, like you and like me. And this inaugural phase of the kingdom will advance, which we'll see in the parable of the mustard seed. The kingdom will steadily grow, supernaturally grow, in the hearts of God's people until one day the Messiah will return for the second time and fulfill all the other dimensions of His promised mediatorial kingdom on earth, which we call the Messianic kingdom. Now all of this is crucial for you to know. Now, this is our Lord. This is our Lord Jesus. We call Him Lord because He is Master and He is King. If you're going to serve Him well, you have to know the way His kingdom works. And those on the inside get to know that. And friend, if you're trusting in Jesus, you're on the inside. And if you're going to labor for the Master and sow the seed of His Word and the seed of the kingdom, you need to understand how this is all going to work out. The kingdom of God at this particular point, we know that our Lord has been crucified, He's ascended, He's on His Father's throne, He will return and inaugurate His kingdom. But at this point in redemptive history, the King has not yet returned. But He has given us a mission. And His mission is Matthew 28, 18-20, to proclaim His truth, to make disciples, to teach everyone to obey all that Christ has commanded, to put it probably in context of Mark 4, our mission is to sow the seed of the kingdom, sow the seed of the word, to teach and preach, proclaim the message and make disciples. This is how the kingdom of God at this particular point in redemptive history is advancing throughout the world. It's not advancing, hear this, it's not advancing through military might, and it's not advancing through political action. The kingdom of God does not advance in that way. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of men's hearts at this point. And at this point, the kingdom of God marches onward as it conquers hearts of men. It's advanced not through political savviness or maneuvering, but it's advanced through the simple, faithful proclamation of the Word of God to men, women, and children. That is how God's people advance the kingdom of God on earth. We pray, Matthew 6, your kingdom come, implying the kingdom has not yet come, but we want it to come on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that because we want to see it come. And every time we see someone turn from their sins to Christ, we're seeing the kingdom of God coming in the hearts of God's people. Now, when you compare the kingdom of God with the way earthly kingdoms advance, it seems very foolish that you could conquer the world through the preaching of the gospel, doesn't it? Which is why the church is always tempted to borrow from the world the, the world's methodology. The kingdom of God doesn't conquer through flesh through worldly wisdom. Actually, the way the kingdom of God conquers is through the advancement of the Word in the hearts of men. And that mechanism of advancing the world is looked at by those on the outside as the height of folly. 
1 Corinthians 1. It's the folly of preaching. You don't conquer worlds, you don't conquer kingdoms by teaching the Bible. It seems so wrong. It seems so wimpy. You're never going to conquer the world by proclaiming the truth of a resurrected king. It seems utterly ridiculous to think that we could overwhelm the wave of opposition that seems to be coming our way, at least in America. There are so many people who are seeing the wave, as it were, coming, and they're saying, well, we better start politically maneuvering to get on top of this thing. Or the kingdom of God is going to be destroyed. It seems utterly ridiculous to think that we can stand against the tide of current cultural pressure simply by sowing the seed of the gospel in our neighborhood, doesn't it? That's not going to advance kingdoms. At least it doesn't seem that way. Don't we need to get out there and picket and labor to overthrow evil regimes? Well, maybe there's a place for that. But Jesus said that his kingdom is not of this world. It's not of this world. And so it's not advanced by worldly mechanisms. The kingdom of God is advanced through the word of God. If it were advanced through other mechanisms, then we could take up arms and inaugurate God's kingdom today. But that's not how the kingdom of God works. Peter tried that, remember? And the Lord said, Peter, put up your sword. The kingdom of God, as Jesus is going to illustrate with these parables in Mark 4, is a kingdom that conquers invisibly via the word of God. And as the word of God is sown year after year, decade after decade, and generation after generation, eventually, the last sower, maybe it'll be me or you, will sow the seed of the word. And then the king will return to glean his harvest. When the harvest happens, then, then, the kingdom will be consummated and the Lord Jesus will rule over this globe. But in the meantime, we continue to pray, Lord, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, all of that, well, all I just said is very different than what Israel anticipated. All right? Only those on the inside get that. Those on the outside, they're still looking for some sort of obvious, glorious, typical, earthly kingdom. And so Jesus and the disciples as well are, are sort of doing the same thing. But Jesus has to come to them privately and correct them. They need to be corrected. If not, they're going to keep doing what they do. And actually, they are corrected and they keep doing what they do until finally it clicks for them. Jesus was teaching through these parables that the kingdom of God at this phase in God's plan is not like the other kingdoms you have in mind. Its progression, its growth will be radically different. And the disciples needed to understand this because they were about to be the lone sowers of the seed. They needed to understand. They needed new revelation, new explanations. They needed to understand that there was an additional development in God's plan that they didn't know about until that moment. And the revelation was that the kingdom is going to come in phases. And the first phase will look a lot different 
than they anticipated. It will be slow and glorious growth. And its advancement will proceed by means that they will not expect. They need to put away their swords and open their mouths and proclaim the gospel. This is what Jesus is teaching them here. And it's only given to those on the inside. The rest, they're left thinking that nothing has changed. They're left with no new insights, no instructions on how the, new, the kingdom of God is actually going to come on earth and advance through the world. They're left in the dark. But those on the inside, they get the truth. So that's the revelation of truth to the disciples. That's what I think Mark 4, 11, when Jesus says, to you it has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, that's what he means. So that is the revelation of truth to the disciples. But now, let's look at the concealment of truth from those on the inside. And we'll just press in a little bit here, uh, since I have a little bit of time. Verse 11. To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside get everything in parables. Those who are outside, as I've said, is everyone except true believers. Everyone who is unbelieving, they get the mysteries of the kingdom, this new development, this new phase in the kingdom. They get that left as an unexplained riddle, a parable. They don't get the explanation. Only those who are on the inside get the news. Everyone else is left in the dark. Now you say, well, why would Jesus do such a thing? Why not tell everyone, hey, look, look, there's a new development in the kingdom of God. Let me tell you about it. Well, we read in Luke 17 that he did say that. He did say that. He did tell them. But they had ears that could not hear. Well, I'm going to head in myself here. Why would our Lord, the incarnation of love, why would he intentionally keep those on the outside in the dark? It's almost as if he doesn't want to be understood and he's being intentionally enigmatic. So what is going on here? Well, this is where the parable of the sower comes in, as I said. It, it becomes actually the key to understanding what's happening in this discourse and in this explanation. The parable of the sower becomes the key that unlocks the other parables. We see that in verse 13. So jump down to verse 13. And he said to them, Do you not understand this Parable. Now notice that he, shipped, he shifts from parables now to parable. They had asked about all parables, but now Jesus has given them an explanation of this parable, singular, meaning the parable of the sower. And why do I say that? Well, because that's the one he explains. Jesus says, if you don't understand this one, how will you understand all the other parables? In other words... Listen carefully to the parable, the parable of the sower because it is the key. The key to help you understand, one, every other parable. But also to help you understand why I'm not explaining this, the kingdom, to these guys on the outside. The parable of the sower is going to give the explanation as to why Jesus is saying, I'm intentionally not giving them an explanation so that seeing they may not see, or seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, otherwise they might return and be forgiven. That sounds harsh, but let me tell you why I'm leaving it dark for them. 
And to put it in a word, and this will be all I have to say, it has everything to do with the condition of the heart of those who are listening to Jesus teach. The disciples have responded in faith and obedience. Mark 4.20, they have a good heart. They're ready to listen and obey. But everyone else on the outside, they're hearing, and especially the, the Pharisees and the scribes, their hearts are as hard as rock. And they have heard again and again and again. And the Lord has given them the word again and again and again. They had Moses. They had the prophets. They had the Lord Jesus incarnate among them. And the seed was being sown onto concrete in their hearts. The word hit and was deflected. It hit and was deflected. It hit and was deflected. And that is the power of the warning. Is because over and over you hear the truth. Week in, week out, you hear it again and again. And if you respond to it in unbelief and disobedience, this passage teaches that the Lord will eventually and often does withdraw Himself and you remain hardened in your unbelief. If you hear today and you understand, don't say, I'll do that next week. I'll bow the knee to Jesus next week. No, no, no. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. It's Hebrews 4. Today is the day of salvation. From a human perspective, here you are, you're here, you, you understand that there is a king, he has a unique kingdom, it's coming in power and he will return. And you think, well, I should probably get ready for that. Yes, you should. Do not harden your heart again to Him. Bow the knee to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You for the insight Your Word gives to how Your kingdom is advanced. If, if we didn't have this truth from Matthew 13 and Mark 4 about the way Your kingdom is growing and advancing, Lord, we would be so discouraged because there are worldly kingdoms that are rising up against your word and your gospel and would mute the proclamation of truth. But Father, even in the midst of that, we are comforted and encouraged by this passage to know that your kingdom will not fail and that even now it's advancing in the hearts of your people and Lord, maybe even in the hearts of individuals here this morning. And we ask, Lord, that if there are any here who hear the word from Sunday school and this word from Mark 4, who are pierced through to the heart, Lord, we pray that you would work supernaturally to give them a new heart, to bow the knee to Christ, to trust in you. And Lord, we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.